Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Welcome back to the Power Hour, the Heritage Foundation Center for Energy, Climate, and Environments podcast. I'm your host, Jack Spencer, and I'm joined today by my colleague, Travis Fisher. Travis, how are you doing today? Yo, I'm doing all right. Yo? Is that all you got for me? <laughs> yeah. All right. I have a question for you, and I'm going to reveal myself, perhaps in some people's eyes, as a bad fan. However, I, you know, I, I like to chit-chat a little bit before this. Do you watch South Park? Are you a South Park person? Is it? Yeah, yeah, I am. I um, my daughter's fourteen, perhaps too young for South Park, certainly too young for certain episodes of South. I Park. was more into South Park when I was fourteen than I am now. I've been a bad fan. I haven't watched for a few different seasons now, but but my my daughter um, and I watch an episode a night, generally speaking, and the episode last night was apropos to what we do here, which is talk about energy environment issues. And I bring it up because, as is so often the case, we hear how uh, The Simpsons predicts the future. You know, they have an episode in 2002 about something that just happened. Well, there's actually a South Park episode about how The Simpsons did everything. Oh, well, yeah, that's not the episode I'm talking about. Okay. But I am talking about an episode where they, in fact, do tell the future. This episode was from uh, 2007. And it was it was right as Priuses were becoming popular. Oh, and I know the one. It, it, it the, the the premise was that people who drive Priuses do worse for the environment than 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 people who don't, and that they drive because they're smug, and that the smugness leads to other bad things happening. And I just thought it was hilarious. W- wasn't this in the episode? Wasn't the vehicle called the Pious? Yes, <laughs> yes, it was. <laughs> yes. So uh, anyway. I just thought I would bring it up. It was a hilarious episode and so telling about the future we were headed into at that time and are pretty much in right now. So anyway, there you go. Anyway, so you know it's not a show until I remind everyone about the Power Hours email account. Yep. And, well, that's your job because I screw it up. So you want to tell us? You remind me to remind everybody. Yes. So I'm reminding you now. What is that email? The email is... The Power Hour at Heritage.org. There you go, everyone. Give us your input. Tell us what we're doing right, what we're doing wrong. We love to get the feedback, and we get lots of it. It helps to inform us what we're going to do. If you know any South Park episodes or Simpsons that are relevant, let us know. We'll watch them and comment on them. And uh, we will respond to everything. If you take the time to send us an email, I promise you we will respond to it. So tell us one more time that email. The Power Hour at Heritage.org. Very good. Now, you know what I'm tired of talking about? I, I can't guess now. Well, I'm going to tell you. I'm tired of talking about so-called green energy. Look, I believe in energy competition. If wind and solar, whatever, can compete, then fine. If there are regulatory or other policy barriers to the, those <laughs> energy sources competing, then fine. But I'm so sick of hearing about how wind and solar are so awesome and are just going to power our future and how everyone just loves it. Yeah, we love it so much, Travis. We love it so much that Washington and state capitals across the country are forcing us to use it. It's an idea so good that you have to not only mandate it, 
but also subsidize it to the tune of trillions of U.S. dollars. It's insane. That's how good this stuff is. We love it so much that despite those decades of those subsidies, and I would argue in addition to the subsidies, psychological cajoling, renewables still only generate about 12.5% of our electricity today. And even that number is kind of not a fair one because it all needs backup. Like, it's not like 12.5% of our electricity is windmills just spinning and always providing 12.5%. Well, and about half of that is hydro, which is not necessarily a... No, this a, is non-hydro. Oh, you're talking about non-hydro. Oh, yeah. it's already at 12.5%? Yeah. Oh, well, of, then, well, then we need to update the renewables number then. Sorry, Jack. We do. Well, you might. I don't know. Um, and then there are the electric vehicles. And look, I'm not anti-EV either, but I am anti the government forcing us to buy EVs. And again, despite decades of subsidy, do you know how much EVs that folks buy, what percent of the vehicles that folks buy, what percentage are EVs? I, I remember seeing something like of new vehicle purchases. It's on the order of like 6%. Oh, you way overshot. 5%. Oh. But interestingly. Did I round up? Oh, you may have. Of those 5%. And as I was looking into this, by the way, the numbers are different. Like people have lower. I took the highest estimate that I could find. There are lower ones as well. Um, half of those people, they don't just have an EV, so it, they have a gas car, too. So their EV is obviously virtue signaling or whatever. Well, there's kind of a theme here. Like, it, it's fine as long as you have a backup. Right. Right. Exactly. Um, but the narrative that EVs, you know, there is this narrative that EVs are awesome. And they, like other energy, are so good. The government cares about us so much. Now they're going to force us all to buy them because they're not happy with just 5% of us buying them. They want us all to buy them. And if you've been following the latest shenanigans of the latest uh, of Biden's EPA, they have a draft regulation that's going to do exactly that. Literally make us buy EVs or they won't make us buy them because we're not going to have enough money to buy them. But the rich people will have enough money to buy them. The rest of us won't be able to buy anything. We'll have to rely on our 77 Chevettes that... You can get for a few bucks. Or my 2011 Jeep that's falling apart. Or your 2011 Jeep. I'm going to try to keep that thing kicking for a while. It might be for a long, long while. Maybe we should do a, a field trip down to Cuba to see how they keep their old vehicles running. That could be fun. A little field research? Yeah. I don't know. Now, look what I've done, unfortunately. Uh, I started this off by saying I didn't want to talk about green energy. And I've literally spent the last five minutes... Going on about green energy, but that is about to stop right now, or at least, yeah, it's going to stop right now. What I thought I, the whole episode was going to be about that. No, 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 I fooled you. What I, it is kind of, because what I do want to talk about is actual green energy. The energy that we use cleanly and affordably to power our modern industrial society. The energy that both gives us the resources and provides us with the opportunity to actually care for the environment. The energy that most of us choose to use absent government coercion. I want to talk about the energy that took the average income for folks in the West from about $1,000 per year, where it stood for centuries and centuries, to the nearly $70,000 per capita income we have today. I want to talk about gas, oil, and petroleum. Now, as is always the case, Travis, not that I don't think you are brilliant. Clearly, I do. But we have a guest today who can help us out even further with this conversation, even than you can. And as is always the case, we don't just have anybody. We bring our audience the absolute best people available. 
<laughs> and that person today is Lou Pularisi, president of the Energy Policy Research Foundation. Lou has an extensive career in these issues. He's worked on the National Security Council, the Departments of State, Energy and Interior. He's even worked for the dreaded EPA. So Lou is our guy. Welcome to the Power Hour, Lou. It's great to be here. And I'm, as you know, I'm your neighbor now. We moved to 25 Mass Avenue, so we're just down the street. Yeah, very good. <laughs> we're excited to have you in the neighborhood. At least someone's moving into D.C., I guess. <laughs> we just moved across town. <laughs> so, so, Lou, let's start with the Energy Policy Research Foundation. What does the foundation do? So, we, you know, if you think of... Uh, EPRING used to be called many years of Petroleum Industry Research Foundation. It was started in the late 1940s, and uh, it was really, uh, it was sort of put together by terminal operators, refiners, and people interested in liquid petroleum issues in around 1944, when they were fighting over whether, um, uh, with the FTC, whether the price of heating oil should be 17 cents or 17 and a half cents. And over time, uh, it, it it was in New York City until around 2005, 2006. I took it over in 2006 when the board sort of reorganized itself and said, look, instead of just writing a bunch of stuff consultants work on, let's work on policy. And so since 2006, we've been less interested in what's happening in the market tomorrow or the next day, or, but more or less uh, engaging directly with the policy process. We've written a lot on biofuels. If I asked anyone on the staff to write another paper on biofuels, they would quit. I mean, we're just <laughs> sick of it. But we've written uh, one of our, actually one of our most downloaded uh, uh, policy papers is uh, technical constraints and cost considerations or something like that for the biofuel mandate. We also have a very popular paper that engineers draw down all the time called a, a primer on gasoline blending. But that's not what we're here to talk about today. We testify a lot on Capitol Hill, of course, much like you folks. We are here to talk about a, a specific report. You have a spanking new report that just came out called A Critical Assessment of the IEA's Net Zero Scenario, ESG, and the Cessation of Investment in New Oil and Gas Fields. Now, we want to get into a bunch of the details of this, but could you could we start with just the sort of an overview of the report, its purpose, its findings, that sort of thing. Right. And maybe a little bit of history on the IEA may be worthwhile. Um, yeah. So if you go back to the mid-70s, this was a big feature when Kissinger, I believe, was in, uh, under the, in the, head, head of the NSC. And the idea was, look, the developed world faces a kind of unique threat. It was after the Arab oil embargo, in that there's a relatively few number of countries with a who have a concentration of low cost uh, resources and those those low cost resources can impose threats and and concerns uh, for the developed world because we were very large net importers then and those are two aspects of those of that threat was one they could restrain output and charge higher prices than would prevail in a more competitive environment or <clears throat> they could engage in restraining production uh, by halting uh, the, the sale of their of their commodities, or they could just blow up, right? They could have trouble. They, they're an unstable part of the world. So the U.S. and the developed world, mostly the OECD, formed the International Energy Agency, and basically it was it was formed to address this threat in a collective manner, because in fact the world oil market 
is a very it's a very fungible commodity and a, a disruption anywhere is a disruption is a disruption everywhere. So and out of that came the formation of the Strategic Petroleum Reserves and initiatives to find alternatives to uh, Middle East oil. And what this report about is about is that the IEA has kind of lost sense of what its mission is, and they have. Um, adopted the mantle to do everything for net zero. <clears throat> now, if your listeners don't know what net zero is. I was just going to ask you. Net zero is a idea that if we could just stop using hydrocarbons and switch to, let's call them so-called renewable fuels, then we could reduce our carbon emissions and all the threats associated with uh, climate risk or the, or the climate consequences of carbon emissions, which we won't talk about today, but we might want to talk a little bit about that, that they would be uh, healed in some way, that the threat, whatever you might perceive the threat of, of more CO2 to the climate, rising sea level, uh, more severe weather, drought, uh, uh, you know, uh, severe weather patterns, all these things would come to an end or they would get a lot better. Now. Um, that that requires you to take on the idea that you can't go and remember this carbon emissions. It's not like a local criteria pollutant. It's a worldwide thing. It doesn't do any good to clean up the carbon emissions in the LA basin. The air quality is not going to get better there any time. But the idea is you have to get the whole world to cooperate on this. So some basic data, there's two sets of data that you need to think about right away. You already spoke about this. We've spent a ton of money on this worldwide. In fact, if you look at the Bloomberg NEF uh, research, they've got around 6.5 trillion since 2004. And primary energy produced by so-called renewable fuels is not more than 5%. That is a big number over many years to get such a low yield. And the other interesting fact that we all have to keep in mind, if you take the developed world and we all went to net zero by 2050, in the absence of the rest of the world where the major economic growth, energy requirements are going to take place, total carbon emissions would probably be no less than 10% than under a business as usual scenario. Mm -hmm. This is really not anything we can uh, fix ourselves or unilaterally. In fact, I have a good one of my trustees once was the uh, he, he's in the US, he's in the mainland now, but he used to be the CEO of uh, Hawaii Gas, and they had enormous program to reach net zero in Hawaii. And I said, you know, I had a chance when Brian Chats was at that time he was lieutenant governor, he wasn't a senator. And I said, do you really think this makes sense for Hawaii? I mean, just think of it as a kind of a game theory problem, right? Whatever Hawaii does, it is not going to make any difference on total emissions of carbon. And if you worry about your tourist business, the livelihood of the people of Hawaii, maybe you should talk about putting in some seawalls or doing some adaptation. So basically, as a, as a fundamental engineering problem, this has been a complete abandonment of a common sense approach to this problem and in favor of a kind of obsession with technologies. You talked about electric vehicles, I think we did earlier. Um, 
you know, the EVs are probably the most costly way to reduce carbon that I can think of. They don't even reduce carbon until you drive them about 60 to 80,000 miles, if you believe the Volkswagen data, which is pretty good data. Mm -hmm. We've talked about this before on the podcast, yeah, and yeah. I certainly am not going to try to put you into a corner on this, but I'll say it for myself, yeah. that it, it all of those facts that you just mentioned make me question whether or not reducing carbon is the actual purpose of this agenda. It makes me think that the, uh, the whole carbon narrative becomes the vehicle by which to achieve a, a, a political and economic agenda. So this is two theories of government behavior. There's one theory is that the government is engaged, the government can organize itself to engage in some kind of effective conspiracy or, and yeah, it's possible that that's it. But I always like the incompetence theory myself. I mean, I, I do think this thing has taken on a life of its own, that all the money the government's passed around, all the, the, uh, you know the socialization of this as a as a kind of common uh, objective society should have has made it very very uh, politically incorrect to take a bunch of engineers and put them in a room and say okay what's a low cost way to fix this problem I mean I always say that if you brought a bunch of engineers from Mars and you said look guys just take it from me this carbon's not good for us what do you think we should do you know what they there's no doubt if you get a bunch of engineers in the room, they tell you the same thing. Well, probably try to produce a lot of gas because it's cost effective. Drive out some coal. Think about what kind of adaptation you're going to do. And then put some research into long-term strategies to uh, see if you can find some cost effective alternatives. And if you can't, they're not going to happen. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I yeah. certainly agree yeah. with that. Yeah. And, and we're going to get to the study for sure. But... I would just say that um, while I agree with you, I'm not. I, I wouldn't argue that there's some cabal of international globalists sitting in, um, you know, the Switzerland somewhere right. puppeteering. What I would say though is that there's a leftist worldview that the purpose of which many, you know, many that meant that many people are uh, sympathetic toward, and that the uh one one of the objectives of achieving that world is a consolidation of power within governments and that this is a good vehicle to do that i don't disagree that's a consequence and not only that the the problem for me is that the hypocrisy of the behavior of a lot of a lot of folks on the left is so stunning you'd think they'd be at least some uh, some kind of embarrassment from time to time i mean you know, they have this thing called uh, attribution substitution. You sort of talked mm -hmm. about it. If you go, I think about half of the total subsidies, the half of the kind of, you know, tax, uh, uh, you know, the tax reduction subsidies for buying an EV show up in California. And I looked at the work from the Institute of Energy Research. I believe average income of the households that get the subsidies is about $250,000. And almost all of them have two or three other cars. Yeah, so it's a kind of wacky, you know. If you if you just spend ten minutes on it, you say, well, you know, this is a really bad idea to re reduce carbon. It's much too expensive. It takes us away from a position where we have enormous strength in terms of national power and, and national wealth as the world's largest oil and gas producer, and then tries to move us to an area where we have very little comparative advantage. In fact, we'll be reliant on 
uh, you know, mineral development in Africa, processing in China. So it, from a, just a sort of common sense point of view, it doesn't make any sense to me. On that point, yeah. and then I'm going to ask you specifically about the report. Sure, this, that's okay. this idea of how <laughs> these EV subsidies go to, to rich people. Um, I was doing some research earlier today, and the, the cheapest electric vehicles available now are the the Chevy Bolt, the Nissan Leaf, the Mini Cooper. They're all between twenty five and thirty thousand dollars. Half of American workers make less than $30,000 annually. And the U.S. poverty line for a family of four is $26,500. And they're going to make us buy those cars? I mean, this is there's not a more elitist uh, agenda that completely ignores the needs of people and the ability of people to lift themselves up out of poverty than this. And everyone should be outraged by it. Yeah, so when I first saw this, this rolling out, I said, well, this can't be good for the Democratic constituents, right? They're supposed to have a lot of working class people. And a pollster, a Republican pollster who I have a lot of respect for, looked at me and said, oh, Lou, you don't get it. This is not about the constituents. It's about the donors. <laughs> and the donors are in Santa Monica and Long Island. They're not in Wall Street. They're not. <laughs> yeah. They're not working on a steel mill in Youngstown. Right. You know, that, that brings up, I think I buy into both theories of government, where there's the elitist, sort of the World Economic Forum class, the Davos crowd, sort of yeah. setting the agenda and giving people the targets to shoot for. And then there's the folks in our federal government, when they do something really stupid, you think, well, they probably had that in the back of their mind, but... I also buy into the incompetence explanation because <laughs> yeah. the times that I've been in government and I hear the conspiracy theories that people are like, were they trying to do this? Were they trying to do that? Um, I can speak from experience that, no, we were just incompetent. Right. So um, there are some <laughs> things that like the, the, the conspiracy theories are fun to think about, but I, I don't, I don't really buy into them except, I mean, this, the, the Davos crowd, man, yeah, I mean, that, you, you could see you've a, seen the you've seen the jets lined up at yeah, the airport. Yeah, it's private it's jets. amazing. It's ridiculous. They're like nobody can use oil. Well, except except us when we fly to our conferences, right. and nobody can eat steak except for us at these special conferences because we're special. It's like right. um, you have that 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 subsection of society that, like you said, Travis, lays out the vision. Then all the incompetent people. I don't know if it's incompetence, stupidity, or just. The willingness of certain people to, when told to jump, ask how high, to feel like they're part of this broader mission to save the world, who just ignores what's in front of them. I mean, and do what they're told. We saw this with with COVID, where we all, many of myself included, just wore the mask. Yeah, put the thing in my arm, shoot me up, you know. And I knew better, but I still did it. So whatever. All right, now you have a report. Lou, it's out. We, it's, we got on here to talk about. Tell us what this report says. Okay, so, so uh, first I'll just give you. So the big picture is, of course, the IEA has issued this report. Issued a, a report uh, in I think it was uh, maybe two and a half years ago when the, you know, and as part of its support for the for the COP process. Now keep in mind that the IEA is a kind of entity within the or, uh, within the developed world. You might, the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, OECD, and it, the ministers of it drive the, you know, drive the policy. And of course the Europeans are extremely 
uh, you know, influential in the group. Uh, I think the Japanese have a more realistic view. And then with the shift in the administrations from Trump to Biden, uh, it, it became quite aggressive in saying, okay, here's how we ought to proceed. We have a strategy which if we, if you get on this pathway of renewables and behavioral changes and improvements in energy intensity, you can stop uh, investment in oil and gas development. And in fact, you should start doing that right away because we can make this happen. I mean, that's kind of what it says. So, and so under the, the they generated a number of net zero assumptions, which looked at uh, how all countries could achieve net zero worldwide. So there, there's a list of things we can take. There's going to be these unprecedented improvements in, in energy intensity. There's going to be enormous, uh, you know, we're going to be able to undertake all these behavioral changes. You know, if, you, if you're going more than uh, 200 miles, you, uh, you know, if you, any, any trip less than, I think, 300 miles, you take a, you have to take public transportation, longer trips, you can, you can fly an airplane, but don't take, go business class. You know, there's all these kinds of different things you should be able to do. And so they, out of this, they generated this whole net zero. And the whole world, actually, you go to these meetings, even the oil companies, you sit down with the oil companies and they say, well, we're on this path for to net zero. And we've got this plan for air capture. We've got this plan for carbon capture and underground storage. And I thought it was curious that I actually think the the it's starting to turn a bit because I noticed as if you saw the recent proxy fight at ExxonMobil, where uh, I forget the name of the group, they proposed a provision for the corporation, which in which they would uh, be required to point out the damage to the cor company if they continued investing in oil and gas to a world that is heading towards net zero. And Exxon just said, well, we've looked at it. There's no net zero. So we are not we are not fooling our stockholders. What we're doing is good for them. So I I do think you, you know I, I would say a couple of years ago you wouldn't see anything like that. But so, some pushback is starting to happen. BlackRock, Vanguard, all these guys are being a lot more. Uh, Vanguard's completely uh, completely out of the ESG business as far as I can tell now. Well, did you see what happened with Toyota the other day with their uh, yeah CEO totally rejecting the move to total <sighs> EVs and then their shareholders voted by 85% to support him when the ESG crowd tried to get him kicked out. And the, yeah, the, Ford, yeah. the Ford CEO is coming around too. Yeah. Yes. And, and in like, fact, yeah, these things are nice. They, they have, they have a niche to fill, but they're not going to be, you know, everyone's everyday car. Exactly. Like, Oh, he's allowed to say that out loud now. <laughs> yeah. These are different. And in things fact, you can see it. They have a, their presentation of all places. Davos shows it's enormously cheaper to reduce carbon emissions through hybrids. Right. I personally don't own a hybrid. It's too expensive. But I still, you know, you, there's this whole idea of having a central plan. And that's really where the report, it says, what the report gets into. It says, okay, let's look at all the pathways. Let's look at the uh, pathways to electrification. Let's, let's look through the pathways for uh, energy efficiency. Let's, let's look through all the behavioral changes that are, Unnecessary. Let's look at the full electrification of the world economies and say, well, all of those pathways have a huge number of landmines, and we try to go through it in a very, uh, in a very kind of quantitative effect to sort of look at it. And and what what happens to that is if you if you 
if you step back and you just try to figure out, okay, how hard is it to do each one of these things? And you see right away, when you start running the numbers, when you start looking at the kind of massive amount of uh, material and minerals and land you're going to need, I'll give you a couple of examples. If you want to reach the solar requirements that are in the net zero an analysis by the IEA, you have to replicate the entire land of Texas. Well, really? That's not including the additional transmission lines, right? You have all these things that Travis does a lot of work in electricity. You have a lot of instability in our power systems now. Well, what happens when you marry asynchronous with synchronous power? We got all the data from Tokyo Electric Power. They gave us all their data. It showed that when they hit 30, 30, 32% of intermittent sources, we're talking wind and solar, their cost structure shot up like, a, like an arrow, straight up. They said it's not possible. It can't be done. Maybe it can be done in 200 years, but it can't be done on this timeline. And you go through this thing step by step. The notion that... Uh, you are going to replace all these uses of hydrocarbons. And it's not just EVs. As we pointed out, EVs is a very inefficient, costly, and somewhat dumb way to reduce carbon emissions. You could get a lot more out of just getting some efficiency in South Asia in some operations or moving some coal to gas. And by the way, even in South Asia, we had a webinar last night with all the South Asians, and, and they said, well, you know, we might get there, but it's right now it's kind of expensive. And that's the key. That's the real problem. And so if we proceed with this strategy, we're going to get what, what we call a sort of a two, a two energy transition. We have the OECD kind of hobbling itself with lower economic growth. And you have the Chinese and the South Asians and, and the Indians saying, well, that's too expensive for us. But we'll make some solar panels and sell them to you. So I, I do think we need them, you know, depending on how you how you want to proceed with this. But right now the government is just lost on this issue. I do I do think on the house side there's some interesting developments. And let's see what happens when when the R when the D's in the Senate have to start to vote on some of this stuff. So I, I really appreciated no. the foreword of the report. So Rupert Darwall wrote the foreword and yeah. he's got this section here because I, I think it fits this is sort of the the theme of the net zero aspiration yeah. is yeah. that it is it is purely aspirational and it's you know i'm sure there are true believers as there are true believers in socialism and right. there's a section here where it basically says look we're, you're basically asking people to not just make a transition but completely redefine their own lives and the way that they use energy and that's the same sort of aspiration that you take when it's like, well, there there was a class at one point that wanted to explicitly transition away from capitalism towards socialism. They were, you know, like, I'm thinking back in the 1920s, like the socialist calculation debate, things like that. This was an, an actual topic where people said, no, we should, we should transform the economy. It's transformative. Mm -hmm. This has the same feel of, yeah, of course people ha have that sort of gut-level want to do it. But as we saw with socialism itself, reality will punch you in the face eventually. And I feel like that's exactly what we're doing here. And that what, what your report does is it basically t 
it calls all the punches. Like we see them all coming. Uh, it would be nice to be able to avoid them. Uh, wanted to get your thoughts on that. Is it, is it, is that the, the right way to think about these issues? It's hard I, about. I it's, agree. It's, it, it's it's a wish list. It's not going to happen. We would be smart to know up front that it's not going to happen and try to avoid the worst of it. So a few years ago, and that, that's where we got some of the intellectual uh, capacity to work on this. Maybe three, four years ago, a group of defense planners said, yeah, we kind of like this net zero stuff. It's interesting. It's really good. But how would you look about telling us how the world might actually turn out? And, you know, our response to that, you know, that's kind of a politically incorrect uh, project. You might get yourselves into it. We're not worried about it. But no, 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 we, we have remit to do this kind of stuff. I said, okay, well, we, we can start to look at that. And and that's to me, is a very telling thing. Because here, is, if you're a defense planner, your real view of the world is that I have to think about how the world really looks like in the next 30 years. And, uh, and maybe I have to be careful if I buy into some net zero nirvana that's not going to happen i'm going to get the wrong answer <laughs> so and so this this is really what has to happen is that first there's going to be an understanding that if we really do this we're going to kill our productivity all if you decide to do something as important as all the inputs into the energy operations of the united states you're going to make it more expensive and that's part of the problem. We were we were told, or we're often told that look, wind and solar is cheaper, or this is you know this will save us against the energy security risks of petroleum. Of course, all that stuff's kind of nonsense when you look at it. But the point is, is if you think about the U.S., it it can take what 18 and a half, 19 percent of GDP for the federal budget. That's about. I doesn't care. You make the taxes high, lower. Would you really want in the U.S. in the next few years, particularly as this huge debt tsunami is going to hit us? is you want more productivity. You want the most efficient, expansive U.S. economy that we can possibly get. And if you want that, you're going to have to have as much low-cost and uh, dense and reliable and resilient energy as we can. And the pathway we're going is just the opposite. Well, and it seems like the, uh, the part of the world that still wants to develop knows that and is behaving accordingly. It's almost yeah. like the developed world is fine, just either pausing or shrinking back. And that, that's that's always been crazy to me. Like we, we seem to be willing to shoot ourselves in the foot here. And I, I've, I've never understood that. So part of this is a numeracy problem, right? Vaclav Smil, who's like Bill Gates' go-to guy and all this stuff, he's, he's written about 15 books. He looks at a lot of these different things. And, you know, we've talked to him. And he, uh, I mean, there's a great story. There are... Three, and this is probably part of this is an OECD US centric view of the world, right? They're what? On one island in Denmark, someone there's 3 million people, right? They've reached net zero or something. There are 300 million people in Indonesia. It's hot. They're growing. Their population is growing. And they all want air conditioners. And you think they're going to really be impressed? By somebody coming down here and say, "Well, you need to really improve your your efficiency. You need to use this hot, this very expensive hydrogen." No, I mean they're going to talk about it because the the OECD goes around to these countries and says, "Look, if you don't get your act together, we won't be able to trade with you. We won't be able to buy your stuff." And so uh, there's a lot of intimidation taking place. But in the end, even the more let's say autocratic regimes, they're not going to stick around if they can't deliver uh, energy at affordable prices. I can tell you that much. 
That's the one thing they care a lot about. That's right. And there was that one really bad photo up where Janet Yellen was standing outside of a straw hut somewhere in Africa. She was there to talk about green energy. Like standing there standing there in a pantsuit in front of a straw hut. Like, tell me more about how you want me to run on solar panels. Right. Especially on your flight back on the on the jet. Can so you send I, me a, a text about solar panels? So I don't know if this is mass hysteria. I can't really understand why. Why you know I I can't tell how many times people have said to me who I mean trained, Lou your pragmatic concerns really can't stop us from proceeding with net zero, <laughs> and I don't really know how to respond to that. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, uh, <laughs> go ahead. I, I was just going to say. <laughs> It's perplexing because, you know, when we, we look and we see what is real before our eyes, and yet it's like so much of the population, you're, you can't talk about it. It's, right. you know, we've been, you know, th I think through funding of research, through the, uh, through political correctness, um, these are all things that have been used to sort of shape our thinking on this stuff. And it has clouded our ability to critically think about it. And as this has moved forward, and it's always the case with big government programs, you, you build constituencies, you get money flowing, and right. now it's tough for people, even if tomorrow some definitive study came out and said global warming's bunk, or, or what we thought about global warming ends up not being the case. I still think you would have a hard time reversing a lot of this stuff because so much of the, so much industry ha is, is being built around it. Well, I have a friend that says, if you give someone a billion dollars to look for global warming, they're going to find it. Oh, yeah. I could find global warming for a billion dollars. <laughs> but it is interesting that even this kind of work, and you guys, you guys know this better than I, but I mean, even to do this kind of work is very tough. There's very little funding for it. People don't really uncomfortable with it. And this particular report is strictly an attempt to look at the numbers. It's not an attempt to say, we don't even talk about climate in the report. We're saying, okay, people want to go to net zero. Let's see what's involved. Right. And you take a look, take a simple thing. Like if you look at the last five decades, right? The average improvement in energy intensity, a kind of efficiency gauge, right? Is about 1.2%. Well, in the IA report, we're going to go to 4.2%. Well, this is what Mark Mills calls magical thinking, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just not going to, you're not going to get there. You you look at, uh, you realize that between now and 2050, the world is going to want the entire, let's say, volume or energy that the OECD has today. In other words, between now and the next 27, 28 years, the world is going to need and, and demand and buy and produce the entire energy produced by the OECD. Well, you're not going to get that. There's no way to get that from wind and solar. Yeah, some of these exotic things, hydrogen, ammonia, you might be able to do something there. But can you really scale it all the way? You need to look at those pathways very carefully and see whether what you can do. I mean, I remember there was an event at George Mason with the uh, energy economist, though, and they had a local distribution company, you know, the, the northern, the, the gas guys that move natural gas. And he said, you know, we're really interested in this hydrogen and we might try to get it going. We might put 1% into our system over 10 years. 
but we're going to look at it very carefully. We could see ourselves the next 10 maybe going to 5%. And the point is what you really got from this guy was, oh, this stuff is new. We don't know all its consequences. And we are not going to subject our entire distribution system to something that something like this, even though it might be a good idea in terms of the sort of broad benefits of carbon. It's too risky for us at this stage. We just don't know enough. And, I, but, and but that's Lou, out there everywhere. But Lou, <laughs> the Environmental Protection Agency says that it's adequately demonstrated. The two technologies <laughs> in the power plant rule to control greenhouse gases are CCS, so carbon capture and sequestration, which I would argue is not a proven technology, and green hydrogen, also not proven, but they went ahead and mandated both. Any thoughts on that? I just don't think that you, I think these public utility commissions, even though, even California produced a document under the CPUC said, can we afford the future? Yeah, you can, as long as people think the power comes out of the wall, they don't really know what their electric bill is, but it's, I see now a pushback. It's coming, it's not really effective politically yet, but people are getting squeezed with this inflation. People are getting concerned about the cost of uh, their electric bills. I just think that, you know, at some point, the Republicans show some competency in recruiting candidates. They'll, they'll be able to flip the, the Congress, you know, and, uh, and they'll be responsive to, to what their constituents really want, which is not these high prices. And they don't, and they don't like uh, systems that go through blackouts. Like the resiliency is a huge issue. Now, they're talking about getting to net zero and how difficult that would be, if not impossible, is one thing. But suggesting that conservatives are actually going to be elected to Congress and make real change. Now you're really talking unicorns. <laughs> magical thinking. But, you know, there is something to this magical thinking thing. I, and I, <laughs> I can't. we'll see how the elections turn out. But <laughs> the net zero goal itself, have you guys ever noticed all of this stuff? It started out with the state level mandates. It was let's get to 25% right, right. renewable by 2025. And like, oh, that's a convenient number to pick those the very round numbers that all matches yeah, 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 yeah. so now it's net zero by 2050 mm -hmm. all very round numbers what are the odds that the actual target if it were truly science-based would come out in such round numbers i uh i'm skeptical jack well i think that you don't trust in the ability of bureaucrats special interests and politicians to centrally manage and plan complex systems. And we've seen historically that no one's better at it than they are. Almost every time that the experts with the power of um, taxation and incarceration take it upon themselves to decide how humans should organize their lives, their, their money, their occupations, who they are with, their religion, it turns out, I mean, it always turns out. So I don't see why that wouldn't be the case here and that they couldn't predict with precision why um, we can't have a specific amount of energy from a specific source in a specific amount of time, despite those things not currently existing. I think, as Lou said, if you if you gave me a billion dollars to show that net zero by 2050 was the exact right goal, I could I could come you up could with it for you. I could produce that. You know, hey, the, I wanted to ask you about something. All yeah, of this yeah. stuff is dependent on people changing their behavior. And, and I would argue that, that, that the uh, forcing people to change their behavior is far more a um, something that gets them to act 
then does the promise of CO2 reductions. And you, I know you, you addressed that in your report. Can you talk a little bit about the sorts of behavioral changes that we would be coerced into in order to achieve net zero? Yeah, yeah. So uh, the one, a lot of them are, uh, you know, you know, carpooling, uh, taking the train instead of your car, uh, and adjusting your thermostats. Uh, you can have, you know, access restriction, registration caps, congestion charges, investment in cycling lanes and public transportation, speed limits, awareness campaigns, <laughs> corporate target, frequent flyer levies. That's a special one for me. <laughs> I do a lot. <laughs> and so, yeah, this stuff is not rooted in anything rational. And let me just tell you, there's a couple of things I wanted to make sure before, that I, to give a little sense of the scale problem. Let's say you got rid of all hydrocarbons, right? Well, one thing, you know, you think about it, there are four pillars of modern civilization which have no cost-effective substitute. Cement, steel, fertilizer, and plastics. Well, fertilizer is an interesting one. In the absence of natural gas, you could only use phosphate. Well, guess what? If that's what you're going to use, that's only enough to feed about 3.5 billion people on a mixed plant diet. No, no, no meat. <laughs> Or, I mean, you know, no one's going to do that. Okay. Uh, how about per capita? If you look at this kind of, uh, there's a chart in our report, and I hope, I hope your listeners will, uh, will uh, get a hold of it. But if you look at per capita energy demand and human development index, let's take a simple case like India. India is at kind of a 0.7. And these, these, these indexes, these indices give you a they could be translated roughly into how much petroleum you use a day. But if you take India and you move it from what's called a 0.7 to 0.8, whatever that percentage is, if they, if they improve that much and their energy mix doesn't change radically, that's 10 million barrels a day of new petroleum demand. That's massive amounts of more coal. I just think these folks sitting out at Stanford and Princeton, they have no clue what's going on in the rest of the world. And the rest of the world is energy hungry, and they're going to get it. I promise you. They're going to get add, the <laughs> I would add quickly, it is much more coal, much more right. oil, and much higher standards of living, much less poverty, much less infant mortality. That that's what you know, when when yes, they hear yeah. more gas and oil, they they hear negative. When I hear more gas and oil for the people of India, I hear um, a society growing, becoming more healthy. And as Heritage Foundation has shown for years, that the more prosperous a society is, the cleaner their environment is. Oh, yeah. And, um, and it also means a cleaner environment. That's what gas, oil, and coal gives you. That was the way I tried to frame this conversation, is that this idea that, um, that an a healthy environmental future is paved by wind and solar um, is simply a false narrative that what we have seen in the last 300 years is that environmental health and human well-being go hand in hand with the use of hydrocarbons and we should celebrate that not try to artificially uh, change that trajectory from Washington right and let me give you one of the statistics we we actually create wealth 
from oil and gas development in the U.S. And this wealth is not just private wealth. If you look at the revenues from U.S. federal oil and gas uh, sales, right, bonus bids, royalties, go back to 2003, you're about $10 billion a year on average. Some years are lower, some years are higher. And there's a really interesting uh, picture on one of our presentations. It's not in this report. I'd be happy to send it. There's a very low, it's, it's December uh, I think 2019, there was a lease sale uh, in the Permian Basement in New Mexico worth a billion dollars. 500 million got kicked back to the state of New Mexico, right? And the, there's a low-level interior official handing a huge check to a very low-level official in New Mexico. And I was thinking under the Reagan administration, Reagan would have delivered the check and the governor would have received it. But they're so embarrassed over this money. Yet this money allows New Mexico to build roads, schools, hospitals, right? And so the strategy of the administration, which is to stop all, all oil and gas development in the U.S., particularly on public lands, well, what happens to this wealth? It just goes away. Well, that wealth, it has real value in society. And... And I'm just shocked that, you know, the, this, uh, you know, I, I testified Luhan uh, on the budget committee. Luhan, of course, didn't want to sh show up for this part of the presentation. But it's just stunning to me that uh, this isn't having a bigger effect on people's, be on people's political behavior. I, I don't know, Lou. I might have uh, changed sides here. If what you're telling me is that gas and oil development uh, empowers government and increases its size and scope. I might have to to get off this get off this issue a little a little bit. Hey, I, we're we're coming up to the end here. Um, I know Travis probably has something else to ask you. I have one thing sure. that I want to ask you. Then then we'll close up. Um, what do you think about nuclear power? Nuclear power seems to be an interesting have have an interesting role to play in all this. Do you have thoughts on nuclear? Well, you know. Uh... I, I talked to uh, Professor Gaddy at University of Georgia. He's a, he's a big, he testified with me a couple of times. And I would say, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. But what we need to, we need, talk about reg reform. We need to find a way to build these things and operate them so that they, you know, they don't cost the GMP of Peru. I mean, it's just the whole regular, you know, all these attempts at streamlining the regulation, getting, uh, kind of modular systems, in the U.S. it's still very tough. So in principle, yeah, the nukes are, everybody should like the nukes. They, they, start, they don't emit any carbon. They're dense, and you don't need a big footprint. So I, I don't yeah. really, but uh, yeah, I, I, that's I a longer, you know, that, that's a slog to fix. Yeah. It, it, we don't need yeah. to get on, on, on nuclear, but nuclear is something that I spend a lot of time looking at, and it is a long slog. The unfortunate thing is that it doesn't have to be. There are it some doesn't. very clear reforms that could be made. And and I take the same approach to nuclear as I do with wind, solar, gas, and oil, for, the, for that matter. I think that the uh, the regulatory environment should be efficient, um, fair, fairly applied, and then allow the market to determine how best to move forward. Now, Travis, do you have any final questions for our fine guests today. I do, I do. Lou, I want to get your thoughts on this one topic, which is actually its whole entire subsection of the report, which I appreciate. Section 1.5, rapid large-scale behavioral changes. Here's what I'm asking, because we have a little bit of a natural experiment right now, uh, and I hate to say it, we probably will for several years now, both in California and in Texas. You see all these flex alerts, and they go by various names, conservation alerts, 
this idea that we need to ration energy and that we need to change our behavior, that we need to basically, I've heard people say this, that we need to get over the idea that electricity is always going to be there whenever we want to use it. We need to change our demand patterns. How do you think that's going to play? I've personally noticed a lot of people get upset when, uh, when you know, you pay your electricity bill, but then the power company or ERCOT or whoever, the, uh, you know, the, the grid operator in Texas or California comes on and says, excuse me, guys, I know you pay your bills, but uh, we don't want you to run your AC right now. Can you just burn up for a little bit? Can you just let's let's get the thermostat up to 80 because can you help us out because we need help? Yeah, so of course you can understand California getting into that position, but Texas they should have known better, right? There's they have lots of, and you know they had a big process of getting rid of their coal plants years ago, right? And the gas did drive out the coal I'll get, through strict their cost basis, but. And the other problem with Texas, you could argue, is, well, you can permit anything in Texas, including windmills. And then they they uh, they went ahead and let the taxpayers pay for all the transmission. So there's been a couple of legislative attempts to sort this out. I don't believe that that is a view. I have a sister who teaches uh, kind of higher math. She thinks the power comes out of the door, out of the wall. But when and she lives, you know, my, I'm from California. The whole family's there. But that really pisses them off when they cut off the power. So I actually think politically, this might be the pathway to reform. That, well, especially uh, in America. I mean, this is yeah, an anti-American idea that you need to have your energy absolutely. use rationed. Like, no, this is America. Give me my energy. You know, the one of the largest backlog, industrial backlog right now in the U.S. is this company, Generac, that makes these backup diesel generators. They're well, going gangbusters in Texas. That's clear evidence that somebody has failed. We can build enough power plants to give everyone all the power they need at a good price. We just have to be rational about it. I have so much Generac stuff. I have a Generac <laughs> generator. I have a uh, Generac also owns, I believe, a company that uh, produces like yard maintenance things like uh, uh Big mowers and chippers. I own two of those. Well, you you may or may not have an actual off-grid property, which is kind of cool. But <laughs> those, those are all true things. But we don't have enough time to get into that. Um, Lou, thank you so much. One, it was my um, pleasure. We have the report. Are there any? Is there anything else that that you or the Energy Policy Research Foundation is doing that we that so we want to make sure they know about? Our did our chairman has uh, uh, actually our chairman is it was a. Actually, deregulated the ICE, deregulated the railroads and the trucking industry in the Carter administration, Darius Gaskins, and he uh, worked. He worked with deregulating the airlines. He became president of Burlington Railroad, and before the merger, and he has just uh, issued a grant to us, which is allow us to set up a center for energy security studies. So that, that's a big thing for us, and we're going to be doing some interesting events on that very soon. Sounds good. We look forward to seeing what the new center produces. Thank you, Lou. Thank you to everyone who took some time out of your day to listen to the Power Hour. And please, as I always say, if you enjoyed the podcast, tell your friends, family, and colleagues to check us out. And if you didn't like us, tell your enemies to check us out. Either way, just tell someone. Travis, Lou, thank you both very much. Everyone did awesome. So there you go, folks. Remember to email us at Travis. The Power Hour at Heritage.org. And if you want to find this report, it's in Real Clear Energy, and you can go to the Eprink website. As and well. we'll link to it um, with this podcast description. Yeah. All right. Thank Great. you, everyone. Thank See you, you next time. Yeah.
Bye.